0: This is Alumni Allowed, a podcast by Graduate Center students for Graduate Center students. In each episode, we talk with a GC graduate about their career path, the ins and outs of their current position, and the career advice they have for students. This series sponsored by the Graduate Center's Office of Career Planning and Professional Development. episode of Alumni Aloud because it was recorded live at our Careers and Research at Nonprofits panel, which I moderated in October of 2019. In this episode, we'll hear from three researchers who completed their PhDs and then began careers in different types of nonprofit organizations. Two of the panelists, Ellie Lanzi and Sam Frank, graduated from the CUNY Graduate Center and Laura Ricciardi earned her degree from Fordham University. At the end of the moderated panel, we'll hear a couple questions asked by the audience. The original recording has been edited for sound clarity as best I could. Okay, so we can start. Everybody, welcome to Careers in Research at Nonprofits. Uh, we have three great panelists tonight. Two are GC graduates, and one is a graduate of Florida, correct? Mm-hmm. So we have Ellie Lanzi, Laura Ricciardi, and Sam Frank. <laughs> so all moderating with some questions. We'll introduce everybody. Um, and then you will all get a chance to ask your own questions to the panel. And we will wrap up questions around 7.20. And then you're free to hang out, talk to panelists, talk to each other. We'll have the room till 8 PM. Sound good? Okay. So oh, also, I'm Abby, and I work for the career office on the third floor. If you haven't been, please visit us. Ellie, why don't you start us off? Let us know what program you graduated from,
1: sure. your degree, and then like what you currently do and where where you are. Okay. So um, my degree's in physics. I work for uh, a member of the research staff at Riverside Research, which is a not-for-profit research company. Um, the company itself does whole bunches of different kinds of research, from uh, high-frequency uh, ultrasound, medical ultrasound, uh, radar, optics, plasma, and I'm in the electromagnetics group. So I do research primarily in uh, radar imaging, computational electromagnetics, and metamaterials.
2: Hi, I'm Laura Ricciardi, and I received my doctorate in applied developmental psychology from Fordham University um, in December 2016. And I currently work at Metis Associates, which is an independent research and evaluation consulting firm. It's, an, it's actually a national organization, but we're based in downtown Manhattan. Um, and we work with a lot of nonprofits, so we're actually not a nonprofit, but we work with a lot of them. Um, and my research area really focuses on arts education, but we kind of run the gamut. And we work with a lot of other educational organizations um, and social service organizations as well.
3: Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Sam Frank. I graduated from the Earth and Environmental Science program here four years ago. I specialize in climate change policy in that program, and nowadays I work at a nonprofit organization called Billion Oyster Project. It's a, it's, we're located on Governor's Island, which is a small little island right off the southern tip of Manhattan. And our, our mission in a nutshell is to restore the once plentiful oyster population in New York Harbor. Uh, which was destroyed years ago by pollution and over-harvesting. But more than that, well, equal to that, and sometimes more than that, the other side of our mission is to tie up the restoration with education. So we're connected to the Harbor School, which is a charter school located on uh, Governor's Island. And we have a, a program to educate and give a vocational education to uh, middle school and high school students, to get more involved in environmental restoration, in climate change education, which is what I'm part of there, and also to sort of be educators themselves in how to restore uh, water quality in in New York City and beyond. Great. So you all have
0: touched on it, and I heard you talking to each other prior, (laughs) prior to starting about your individual types of projects. So, you know, even if there's a couple, maybe you could highlight one example of a project uh, that you guys are working on. I think we'd like to hear a little bit more detail about what those look like. Ellie, you wanna go ahead?
1: Sure, so um, one of the things I'm working on is um, sparsity in computationally generated uh, synthetic aperture radar imagery, so we, having this, know what the backgrounds of the audience is here but um, we generate um, like sort of notional models in a you know computer models and run it through a code to generate what um, sort of the theoretical radar image might be and then we apply some you know analysis techniques to try and determine if there's information sparsity so this would sort of map to like how you could take the same image with a reduced number of collections or with a different frequency sweep and things like that Yeah, so Riverside research is weird in that, like, again, it's a not-for-profit, so we're like halfway between academia and industry. So, you know, I'm a theoretical and computational physicist. I don't actually build things. So I'm sort of trying to prove out concepts to see if they'll work, and if they work, then we'll partner with someone who might try and do an experiment. Maybe we'll, you know, some other people in our company will work together to do an experiment, but it's to try and find new ways of generating radar imagery. So radar imagery is used for like a million different, you know, applications, but. It's just taking a picture with a different color of light, basically. Great.
2: Okay, yes, that's Laura? So I work in consulting, um, evaluation consulting, and so I work on probably like at least eight projects at a given time um, to varying degrees. And one of the projects that I'm working on right now that I've actually, we've been working on for the past few years, is an evaluation of Arts Intern, which is a program of Studio Institute, or Studio in a School, if you're familiar. It's an arts residency program, nonprofit. And um, Arts Intern is one of their programs where they work with college students and place them in museum internships um, for the summer. And so we're learning about what their experience is like in their internships from interns' perspective and their um, museum supervisors' perspectives and how it may have affected their career skills, their career paths, their relationship to the arts, their relationship to museums, um, whether it's kind of influenced their decision-making long-term. We also get in touch with the alumni and find out how Arts Intern has affected them years into the future um, and whether they're applying the skills that they learned during Arts Intern in that time. And so we use focus groups, observations, and surveys, and some interviews um, and document review to answer all of those questions. So it, it ends up being a very large project, but it's really fun. It's interesting, and the work the work is really interesting. So
0: you have about eight
2: projects simultaneously, right? Yes, uh, yeah. And Ellie, are you on multiple projects at a time? Yeah, well I'm on multiple time? projects at a mm-hmm. time. Okay, yeah. and Sam, how about
3: Yeah, similar. Um, my example is going to be sort of like the multi-pronged, We have multiple sites around New York City where we are installing oyster reefs, artificial oyster reefs, and we actually sign up. It's both a student and volunteer-led project. So we have a site on Governor's Island, in Fort George, in Staten Island, Patigate Basin, in Jamaica Bay, a number of other spots where we're installing oyster reefs and we're sort of seeding them with little tiny baby oysters called spats. And one of the things that I'm most involved in is sort of pulling out the historical research, or researching the, the history of a lot of these sites so that we can tie in the way that sort of the, the, the history of these these sites looked uh, to students now and how they can understand the impacts of sea level rise, environmental pollution, all these sorts of um, climate impacts that that now play a role in what they're actually seeing when they go to these sites and they're covered in all sorts of pollution and moss and different things like that and then they they can actually install these oyster reefs and see what uh... what it is that they're actually trying to restore you know it's really it's multiple different sites that are part of a single project
0: could you each kind of describe your journey from graduate school
1: to getting your current position So. I graduated in 2012 and was hired in 2012 uh, at okay. Riverside Research. So I've been there since I graduated. They picked me up right out of school. Um, so, it was, but
0: how, why so you I networked
1: in. I, I actually didn't know that they even existed, and yeah. I met someone at like a, a party who worked there, and she suggested that she said there's you know there's a position opening up soon for a physicist. So like this the start, yeah, it was it was uh, lucky you know very lucky, but um, right place at the right time, and there were you know had to go through the whole interview process, but. Um, That's how I got where I am. Great! Laura, how
0: did you get to where you are?
2: So, I taught for the first few years of grad school and decided teaching was not for me. So, during my dissertation, I opted out of teaching and I got a full-time job, Um, not at my current job. I worked at a nonprofit in Midtown, and I was hired in September 2015, and I started as an evaluation analyst in a very small internal evaluation department, um, and a couple months later, my boss left, and I took her job, <laughs> and um, and it was a little early in my career, I felt, to not really have anybody to learn from because it was not a research organization, so I stayed about another year, and um, it was still a very valuable experience, but then I had known about Medis Associates already and I was really interested in moving into consulting. Um, I just wanted more variety um, and not to be doing the same kind of study over and over again. So um, I saw a job opportunity come up for Medis in the New York Consortium of Evaluators job postings and I applied and I went through a th- one interview I think. Um, And I was hired. I actually started two days after my defense, so that was December
0: 2016.
2: No laps there. No, no laps. Yeah.
3: So my story was actually, I mean, it's uh, it's similar to you guys in that I got lucky as well. Um, When I was a student here, I was in a class called Perspectives on Climate Change, and. My professor in that class ended up being one of the professors on my dissertation committee. Um, I should say first that this led to a job that immediately preceded the current job at Billion Oyster Project. It was, it was for a firm called Climate Nexus, which is a climate change and clean energy communications nonprofit. So um, when I was in this class called Perspectives on Climate Change here, I was in the early stages of my dissertation research. I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do for my dissertation, but I knew it was going to be about climate change policy in the United States, trying to look at specific uh, policies that work and don't work, depending on the state, because we were in a a position then as we are now where the federal government wasn't exactly leading on cutting emissions and creating a, a national policy on climate change. And so one of the things that my professor at the time did for this class was he had friends of his, professional contacts of his come in and kind of like entertain us for an hour and a half and give us their spiel about what it is that they did. He had scientists, kind of like media people uh, come in and and give us their, their story about what they did and where they worked for the class. And so a, a guy came in named Bob Tanner uh who was not a climate change scientist or even necessarily expert but he ran this outfit called Climate Nexus that specialized in nonprofit strategic communications on climate change and clean energy. So he was talking to our class and you know from a from a very kind of relatable standpoint meaning it wasn't overly jargony he was he was really clear in how they took the science and actually scientists and connected them with media and reporters and was able to sort of facilitate their research getting out into the public in a like a consumable digestible sort of way which a lot of scientists, and, and I mean, I was so, I was so immersed in um, a lot of the data and sort of drier elements of climate policy at the time that it really kind of sparked, uh, uh, sparked something inside of me and made me think, okay, there's a, there's a way to kind of bridge this gap between the, the esoteric kind of jargony, though important, research that's being done and the general public. So that was it, and I, I, you know, got his email afterwards and said, this is really cool. I'd never even really heard of climate communications before, but it seems like something that is very interesting, and we just ended up getting coffee a few weeks later, and then another coffee a month or so after that, and then that ultimately led to him offering me a kind of a, a contract, like a project to do for Climate Nexus, where he gave me this really boring silly paper on like transportation emissions in like part of California not even the whole state of California he said okay boil this down into three paragraphs and it took me a little while to do because it was a little hard to understand what this paper was actually trying to say but I did it and then that led to ultimately as I was doing my dissertation a fellowship which then turned into a full-time position after I finished so that was the that was the story. Yeah.
0: That's great. So you, you all have a little bit different journey. I'm wondering what the hiring process is like for your different organizations. Eli, you, uh, you said you had multiple interviews?
1: So in I had an in-person, like a phone screen first where I mm-hmm. spoke to the guy who was going to be my boss um, on the phone for a bit. Um, then they brought me for an in-person interview, which consisted first of me giving a technical talk for about 45 minutes. Um, and then... A bunch of chatting with them afterwards. They sort of. How, how,
0: what kind of group are we talking about? In front of how many people?
1: So this was in front of the entire research group at the time. Oh, so okay. we're a fairly small group. We've grown since, but I think there are around six or seven people. And like our research group is a mix of computer scientists, and electrical engineers, and physicists, and a bunch of other different kinds of people. Okay. So, um, you know, I had to be able to communicate whatever I was talking about to people with, you know, varying degrees of technical background. So yeah, there was. That and then there was like discussions afterwards, like sort of the standard interview questions, and then that. So, I guess it was just, just a two stage. I probably spoke to HR somewhere in the middle there,
2: also. But,
0: okay. Laura, would you have to do just
2: one? Yes, I think mine was a little easier. Um, so I just had to submit a writing sample and, um, and had an interview with my boss, my now boss, and um, the man who is now sort of like my mentor. Okay. You have to yeah, I mean,
3: I kind of touched on it just now where I think my interview the formal interview process was not very formal at all but I think it was the sort of stepping up from okay uh, I'm interested in what you're doing and you my potential boss are interested in in sort of seeing what I'm all about to then getting an opportunity to show what I can do work-wise research-wise Um, by being given this paper and being told to or being asked to um, you know summarize it, boil it down, make it understandable and then that then led to you know it wasn't even sitting in a room with the boss and a couple other bosses and um, answering formal questions and that sort of thing. It was really a a matter of we have a need for someone like you to do the boiling down of, of research, because we have sort of the PR people on one side, we need more of the science people on the other side uh, to do this sort of thing, and it was a little bit of track record, a little bit of having the relationship established at that point already, that I was able to just hammer down the the full-time job after I graduated. Great. Uh, And now
0: I'm going to ask you guys, in your opinion, what are kind of the benefits maybe the advantages, maybe the disadvantages of working in this sector. And I know, Laura, you're not really a nonprofit, but you have a lot of experience with it, and you're, mm-hmm. you're working, your clients are nonprofits. So what do you guys view as the good parts, maybe the bad parts, of being in nonprofits?
1: So um, I really like that, like I, I did some internships, both in undergrad and one or two points in graduate school in like sort of standard industry. and. They were so hyper focused on whatever their main product was or whatever their main business was. Everything had to have this sort of like very clear business case. Um, whereas in a not for profit, because we're like somewhere halfway between academia and industry, we can sort of scratch out problems that are sort of more fundamental, more interesting, that don't necessarily have a like a business case in the traditional sense. It might be a business case in the sense that you can find a grant for someone who will pay you to, you know, take the, the idea further, but it's not like, you know, I need to sell X many widgets and you have to invent a new way to make this widget manufactured better or something like that. Um, so I like that a lot, that you know, we can focus on like, basic science and we can poke at interesting problems. Um, also because it's a not-for-profit, so you know, the company, when it makes money from you know, consulting or, you know, or um, pr- you know, um, grants or whatever, so whatever profit the company makes gets folded back in on company-sponsored research programs. So it's not just like writing grants the whole time. The company has a bucket of funds. So if you have an idea, you float it up the chain. They'll be like, oh, that's an interesting, you know, here's, here's a hunk of cash and go do research on this for a year and you come back to us and see what you found.
0: So it sounds like you have a lot of flexibility there, too.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, Project- we have projects that we need to do that we're, sure. we, you know, we're on contract to do or whatever. But um, there is this uh, you know, ability to do sort of internal research, something that interests you, some idea that you've thought up and you wanted to see if it cool. works um, so I like that a lot, and also in the not-for-profit because it's, you know, we're sort of chartered to do scientific research in the public interest, the notion of doing stuff, you know, that benefits the public, you know, writ large. I think it's also, personally, I find that valuable rather than just I've made someone's bottom line better and the stockholders now all got a whatever, I don't know the finance stuff, more money at the end of the year
2: than did before. <laughs> yes. And Laura, what's your experience in not-profits
0: like?
2: Well, I mean, I would start with the negative and then end positively. So. Oh, I didn't
1: talk about the negative.
2: Uh.
1: Negative is just less money.
2: Right, yeah. yes. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> That's just Yeah,
2: that would be one of the negatives. And then also um, at some nonprofits, people are often overworked. They're often understaffed. Um, so that can be kind of tough. But you do have the benefit of working on really amazing, meaningful work um, and... Knowing that the work that you did is impacting other people's lives in a positive way is pretty powerful. Um, And even though I no longer work for a nonprofit, I work with a lot of nonprofits and we evaluate their programs and give them recommendations. And it's really amazing to hear along the way a lot of stories and see data points showing that their programs are effective and that they're really impacting people's lives and then also to hear back from our clients after our evaluation report, saying that they've implemented some of the recommendations we've given them is really exciting.
3: Yeah, I I mean, I have to agree with you both. Um, It's the difference between where the standard of success is bottom line and shareholder growth and and issues like that, which is, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, and we all kind of depend on that in in one way or another. in the world, whether we like it or not, but working for a nonprofit where, you know, the the funds to operate the business are kind of, they're there, we have people who are fundraisers. Um, I mean, I've done some grant writing uh, for the organizations that I've worked for, but for the most part, not. So I've been, I've had the luxury of being able to rely on other people to do the fundraising. So that makes me and others free to do the sort of work that that we're hired to do where the standard isn't making money, but it's having an impact. At Climate Nexus, you know, the standard for success wasn't how much money any given project or article that we wrote made, but it was, you know, how how many other organizations benefited from it and how can we actually measure that impact based on, I mean, in a lot of ways, it was based on um, social media and just general connections and how we actually grow the the research that we're doing and, and measure the amount of impact that it has. Um, but at a an outfit like Billion Oyster Project, we're really we're tasked with doing research and then letting it have an impact on students and then seeing them graduate and then seeing what they do with that sort of information. So you know, the, the, the benefit from that comes in a more, uh, or in a less tangible sort of way, but it's still, it's still is very much present and it's very important to see. And do you
0: find the disadvantages is more hours?
3: What? Um, your opinion? Well, I think this, that, the, what I just described, if it made any sense, can also be a disadvantage. It's harder to put a hard sort of metric on what counts for success or failure in a situation like that, so I I think that's sort of like uh, you know part of the part of the agreement that you sign up for when you're working in a nonprofit, where um, you're you're doing it for kind of like a cause, like a, a socially beneficial cause, um, but it's not so black and white as to what what, what the what the gain is, what the growth is. So my, interesting that my
1: experience with the not-for-profit is that I haven't, I mean, when I was first hired, like, there was, there were programs that I just sort of got stuck onto, but, um, you know, I've been involved in writing technical proposals for, you know, new work and things like that. So it's not just that, like, there's the grant writers and, and then, you know. Sometimes
0: it's many
1: acts. Yeah. So, you know, because we're doing research, we'll have to, like, you know, we're the technical experts, so we have to, like, actually write what it is we want to research and convince someone to, you know, to fund that research. So it's not, you know, at like a big company, it's like, all right, you know, ExxonMobil's research and engineering budget is X many gazillion dollars, and here's your piece of it, go research whatever we tell you to. It's, well, you have this idea, and now you have to convince someone that it's worthwhile. So you do have a little, at least my experience, is you you have to spend a little bit of time convincing other people that your work is worthwhile in order to get external funding for it. Great, okay. And so yeah,
0: now I want to kind of talk about, the skills that you guys are most using in your positions, because um, I think Laura, you're doing consulting, and it sounds like you're doing a program evaluation. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you have to do a lot of communicating, um, standardality, so mm-hmm. you know technical writing to like for the masses. So or maybe not so much. So anyway, maybe you could describe better. What are the skills you're using day to day most often in your position?
1: So. On a good day, I'm just doing science, so it's just whatever my science skills are. Um, but I do spend a lot of time. You need to, you know, we need to communicate to, um, you know, sponsors of our research, you know, what we're doing and, and why it's important. So yeah, communication is, is really key, and that was actually part of the interview process. The reason they had me give a, you know, 45-minute talk was they wanted to see that I could communicate, um, you know, what it is that I did and why you know, it was sort of like they gave me this open question of speak 45 minutes on a topic of mutual interest, which is like, all right, so that this was, you know, figure out what, what mutual interest and then convince them that what I did, you know, what, what my research was, was important to them. So um, yeah, communication and being able to, to take a complicated scientific concept and make it understandable to someone who's maybe just a program manager and like has a vague sense of what you're doing, but not in any gritty detail, how to, you know, make them understand it and Again, when it comes to writing proposals, you have to be able to take a complicated thought and make it a paragraph or less. So, and when
0: you say doing science?
1: Yeah, just sitting and actually doing the research, like math, physics, computations, writing code, running code, yeah. Okay. You can do all
0: that stuff? Yeah. Great. And Laura, what kind of skills are you using? What are you
2: doing? Well, thankfully, I use many of the skills that I learned in grad school on a very regular basis. Um, so like I said, I work on a lot of projects at a time. They're all in different phases of the project. Um, so on any given day, I can be out in the field collecting data. I can be designing research measures. Um, I can be meeting with clients. I can be conducting focus groups or interviews or gathering surveys or analyzing all of those data. Um, and I write up a lot of reports um, for clients and funders. And so an- another skill that I would have learned through consulting is how to speak with clients, how to manage client relationships and manage client expectations for the work, and how to write reports in a way that they are understandable to people who are in nonprofits and are busy and uh, don't have time to wade through really long technical reports, but they want actionable steps. Um, So those are skills that I've been working on more in consulting that I didn't necessarily learn in school.
3: Yeah, I think there's a, a theme developing, which is, I mean, same story. Um, a lot of what I've had to do uh, professionally over these these last few years is really try to um, make whatever sort of technical information that comes before me not only understandable and relatable, but sometimes interesting if it's a rather sort of drier or esoteric subject at Climate Nexus. Um A lot of what we did was pitch stories, so if there was a new IPCC report out of the UN, um, intergovernmental panel on climate change report about, you know, two degrees Celsius is going to tip the scale for climate impacts and make make sort of the emissions reduction that a lot of countries are doing a lot harder to come back from, you know, all these sort of, all these sorts of issues that don't necessarily catch the eye of your everyday uh, newspaper reader We had to sort of find the hook and create a a very short, like Ellie just said, like a paragraph's worth, you know, a summary to really catch the eye of a reporter so that they're going to write something about it and make it much more, you know, graspable by the everyday subject. Same thing with Billy and Oyster Project, only what I'm trying to do is actually boil a lot of this stuff down to make it digestible for school kids, I mean kids, high school students. And then so that they can take that and run with it in their own projects and um, what they're doing at the Harvard School. So, you know, it, it's funny, and I'm sure my, um, my dissertation professors would love to hear me say it, but when they would pound me back in the day about this sentence or this paragraph or this chapter is too, I mean, it's, it's too in the weeds. It doesn't, it doesn't click, and it's you know, I understand what you're saying but can you say it in a better, more relatable sort of way? And that would be the hardest work. I mean, it's sometimes easier to just put it all out there, put it on paper and and let it kind of exist as you first understood a a subject or you're connecting a number of subjects together. But it's a lot harder to then go back and edit it and make it more uh, tight and make it tighter and make it more um, fun to read, you know. Doing that work then, I think, served me well in doing a lot of the different research projects that I'm doing now.
0: Great. So the graduate education was all worth it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. Um, sort of. <laughs> what kinds of professional development uh, do you guys get at work or are you personally doing kind of those things, those skills you're maybe trying to build after graduate school?
3: So Good question. <laughs>
1: Professional development for me has basically been proposal writing, and it's okay. it's been learning how to take, like, the difference between writing a scientific paper and writing a proposal, which is, like, a it's a very different exercise, where scientific paper you're trying to just sort of summarize your results and explain them to people, whereas proposal you're trying to convince them that this research is interesting oh, and important, so it's, yeah... Um, so that for me, it took took me a while and, you know, a bunch of rounds through proposals and comments from my peers and my my uh, bosses and so on to, like, get better at that. So that's something that that I've, you know, that's been professional development on the job. So
0: how do you get that kind of feedback loop when you're in a professional setting?
1: So I work in a very collaborative group. Okay. So we'll often, like, we'll get an RFP out. We'll all sit down and try and figure out what our approach will be and then chop up a proposal into pieces and we'll all take a swing at it and then shove it together, and then we'll review each other's work. So it's kind of like peer review, but it's just your actual peers as opposed to some random anonymous person um, at some other school. Um, and it, you know, so that was very useful. And then the company itself, like, you know, when there's, like, a proposal out, they'll offer, you know, they have training available for people, like, you know, how to write how to write a good proposal, what style things to look out for. Again, dis- differences between a, Scientific paper and a proposal to write a scientific paper. So, like, um, so it was informal as well as some formal training at work. What kinds of things
2: are you doing? Um, similar to what Ellie said, we work on teams at Menace and we're very collaborative. So there is like a constant feedback loop, and we have reviews pretty regularly, um, several times throughout the year. Um, so I found that the longer you're at a job, it feels like the less time there is for PD in that sort of like intentional way. Yeah. Um, but we do have a PD committee at Metis as well, so we have PD opportunities throughout the year. Um, and then I still I present at conferences every now and then, so I get to attend some conferences, attend some sessions
1: we go to, Yeah, we go to too. conferences mm-hmm. also both speaking at them as well as attending just to listen. Oh,
0: and um, what kind of
2: conferences uh, are you doing, Laura? It- um, so- I am going to be heading to the AEA conference, which is American Evaluation Association, in a couple of weeks. I have a couple presentations there.
0: And which
3: ones do you do? I have a variety of physics conferences.
2: <laughs> okay. so-
3: IEEE conferences. So that was going to be my answer. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't really have, the closest thing that I have had over the last few years to professional development is going to these conferences, networking with people, talking about what I do, hearing about what they do, um, which is often really, really different. Some of the best examples, a year or two ago, I went to a Department of Energy conference in DC, which was like a couple thousand people from all over the spectrum, Um, people working on renewable energy, people working on uh, efficiency, storage, um, emissions reduction, all sorts of things. And one of the things that I learned there was sort of like an offshoot of just the work that I do in general, which is, like, you need to be able to communicate it. You need to be able to explain to people what it is that you're doing. Even though you're in the same, you know, Bannerhead conference, you might end up doing very, very vastly different things. I mean, one of the benefits to that is most of the time, people are really genuinely interested to figure out why it is that you're there and why are you standing, you know, together having coffee over the same, you know panel group at a, at, a, at a given conference, you know, there, there's going to be a reason and you have to sort of find that through line that connects you with this person or these people that you're talking to. And I think that that's professional development in the sense that it you know, broadens your scope about the very diverse group of people that are actually working in the same space that you are, whether you understood it beforehand or not, it really sort of opens your eyes to, uh, I went to a Bloomberg Energy Conference in the city here um, a few months ago, and, you know, it's a lot of finance people, it's environmental people, it's like a really, really wide, wide range of people, and you know, and if you talk to them, you start to realize that there's, there's a lot of overlap in what people do that otherwise would seem really, really different.
0: I've had prepared that I've had in mind, so I'm going to open it up to our audience. Does anyone from the audience have specific questions they have for our panelists? Uh, um, how much creative control do you have in doing research for your organization?
3: Um, let's see, creative control. It's a good question. A lot of times I'll come up with a proposal and we can explore it. Sometimes we actually end up creating a product out of it and sometimes we don't. I mean, and and as far as my experience, I've had the most creative control when I was able to connect a brand new project to something that we already had in the works. So, um, you know, I think for the most part, People who are who are controlling these sort of organizations, you know, the executive directors, the managing directors, they want to, uh, you know, just speaking how we were speaking about how we were talking about um, these organizations don't necessarily we don't go by money metrics necessarily, but how much of this particular product are we putting out that's connecting with lots of other organizations that are partners of ours or whatever. If you can convince a director in your organization that your new research idea proposal has something to do with what we're already doing that is important to the bottom line of of the organization, then you're going to have a lot more control over that.
2: For me, it really depends on the project um, and the organization. So sometimes, Uh, organizations come to us with very specific RFPs of exactly what they're looking for and oftentimes they're based on what the grant requirements are the funder requirements so um, we kind of stay in that lane and then it depends on whether I'm managing the project or not so I'm on several projects that I'm not managing so I have much less creative control and then on projects that I am managing I will put together a work plan with a design and um, my boss will look it over and we'll work on it together
1: So similar to that, like, you know, I have a certain, you know, reasonable amount of creative control. It depends on the project. Certain projects are more open-ended, and it's like just have at it, see whatever you want to come up with. Um, Sometimes you can have a crazy idea and redirect the way a project goes if it's a good idea. Sometimes they'll shoot it down if it's a terrible idea. Um, And then because we have this method of internal funding... Um, if I have some crazy idea I want to chase down, I can you know, get funding to do that just internally. So, and again, also it also depends. Certain projects, if I'm a technical lead, so then I have a little bit more creative control than if I'm supporting someone else's you know, project. And then it's like, I just need physicists to do this little piece for me, please. Like, help me out with this. And then you know, I'll be able to, to do that, as
3: opposed to like, here's, you know, solve this giant problem and figure out how to do it with all the people you have. The one thing that I wanted to recommend coming in here to talk to you guys which is i mean it's it's just plainly what i benefited from while here probably i mean arguably the the most important thing that i benefited from if you if you can solicit a professor who you're taking a class with to you know ask their contacts and their their people to come in talk to the class for 15 minutes maybe the whole class about what it is that they're doing that could then create it could inspire you it could it could create new connections that that then that could lead to who knows but but that kind of little alchemy that goes on there is is often unexpected and it can be really beneficial you can't just be like hey doctor professor so and so can you you know really just open my mind open up, open my world up by bringing in half a dozen of these like brilliant people who are hiring it might not be that simple but Try. Yeah. Give it a shot.
0: Definitely. Students should advocate for that. <coughs> what are the other departments at your, like, you're in a physics one, but you, I think you mentioned, like, computer science. Yeah, so
1: so our my group in particular has physics, computer science, and electrical engineering are the primary, like, cohort of people that make up our group, because we do computational electromagnetics, so that involves... People who can run the code, which are electrical engineers. People who can figure out what the code should do, which is physicists, and people who know how to write code, which is computer scientists. Um, and then all of us have like research things: like computer scientists research computer science stuff, and electrical engineers research electrical engineering stuff, physicists physics stuff. But other groups in the company. So we have people that do like plasma physics. So we have people that do uh, medical uh, ultra, uh, ultrasound for medical applications. So those are again, each group has their own mix of expertise. Um, so. You know, optics. There's an optics and photonics group. You know, again. Are full there of, any
0: other kind of branches? Do you guys have any humanists or social scientists over there?
1: Not to my knowledge. No <laughs> <you should> <laughs> we have some linguists. Oh, okay. So, wait. Didn't you say there it? were six or seven people in the? So my group now is like thirteen people. Oh, okay. So we, we've right. grown like a lot in the last couple of years. Um, okay.
0: But. Laura, what kind of research groups do you have at Metis?
2: How's it organized? So we're organized by teams. There are three teams, and my team does all the arts education, or the vast majority of it. We do sometimes take on projects that are not arts education, but that's kind of our focus area. Um, and then the other teams both sort of work on, I guess one is a little more educational focused, and they work, like, work with a lot of magnet schools um, and just general education programs and policies. And then we have another team who I would say works more with like the public programs, social programs. What about
3: the research? Um, I mean, my previous firm was much more separated out in different teams. There were probably half a dozen teams, like a media team, a climate signals team which focused on you know every time there was a giant heat wave or a hurricane or something like that connecting it to climate change using science. Um, my team, which was the renewable energy team. Now at Billion Oyster Project it's a little more diffuse. I mean there's there's a pretty wide separation between the people who are uh you know teaching underwater welding and stuff like that versus people like me who are more on the the curriculum side, uh environmental education, climate change, that sort of thing. Um but we're pretty small. I mean we're less than twenty people, so you know, there's always a lot of overlap in terms of what we do, so,
0: yeah. yeah Sarah. I'm wondering what a typical day looks like in each of your workplaces. Like, what are the
1: nuts and bolts of your job? Um, varies wildly depending on the day. Um, some, you know, some days I'm working six different projects and I'm just running, like, back and forth and back and forth and some days like i can sit and focus on a particular project and just stare at pages of math all day and it really it it varies some Mm -hmm. days you know if we're in like a big development push it's a lot of you know software development meetings, making sure that like you'd get in like a like any other software development sort of environment and some days it's just physics arguments you know three hour long arguments with whiteboards with with peers and like really every day it's it's fun because every day is different like i don't have i don't usually have the same thing that I'm doing day in and day out, day in and day out.
2: Um, For me, also, it varies quite a bit. So yesterday I worked in front of a computer in the morning, and then all afternoon I was on an observation in the Bronx and then running a focus group there. Um, And then today I was on my computer all day uh, doing some qualitative analysis. Um, I'm not even sure exactly what tomorrow is going to be. but. Um, It just, it varies and it varies also depending on the time of year, so like at the end of the school year and even in the middle or end of semesters, I guess, we have a lot of site visits so we can be in the field like most days of the week doing, you know, observations and focus groups and whatever else, survey collection. Um, And then we might be at our desk for a while doing all the data analysis and report writing.
3: Yeah, I mean, similarly, it it varies a lot. Um, If you're writing something, then you're, you know, like it or not in front of a computer. Um, Even when it's collaborative, it's a lot of, you know, Google Docs and comments and stuff in the sidebar. So that is, that's sort of just like part of the job. But then a lot of times I get to get on a boat and go out to Jamaica Bay or do other kind of, fun stuff like we have a volunteer program where people come and they help assemble artificial oyster reefs so we can do that with um, with people who come um, you know do some do some uh, connecting pieces of metal with nuts and bolts or even welding sometimes um, and also just working with working with students so you know there's all kinds of unexpected fun stuff that comes up then so it really uh, it Day by day, it varies a lot.
0: Thanks again to our panelists for coming in to visit us at the Graduate Center and sharing their careers with our attendees and Alumni loud listeners. If you're in the Graduate Center community and you'd like to attend something like this career panel, I have great news. Our office holds several of these throughout the school year. Check out our events page at cuny.is slash career plan to see what's coming up. You can also follow us on Twitter at careerplangc for updates. Thanks for listening.